Hello and welcome to the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. In this week's episode, we have Sheridan Hansen, a USU horticulturist at the Utah State University Botanical Center in Kaysville. She specializes in heirloom tomatoes and she's going to share five of her favorite tomatoes with us. She will additionally talk about a potentially major problem for anybody that grows tomatoes, blossom end rot. And in our Fresh from the Garden segment, intern Annie Smith will highlight a great recipe using radishes. First up, Sheridan Hansen. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. This is super fun for me. It's greatly appreciated. But what is an heirloom tomato? So an heirloom tomato is a variety of tomato that we say is usually around 50 years old or older. Um, And it's what we call open pollinated, which means um, we're not trying to control the genetics. We're not trying to breed for anything anymore. So it's it's getting pollinated by the wind. It's getting pollinated by insects. um, It's getting self-pollinated typically. And the genetics are stable um, in these tomatoes as opposed to a hybrid tomato that the genetics may not be stable. So if I was to grow out a seed from an heirloom tomato that I had saved, I will get the same tomato. Where with a hybrid, um, if I was to grow out the seed in a lot of our hybrids, I would get a totally different tomato. It would revert back to one of the parent varieties. So these are good, stable genetic tomatoes that have usually a history, a story, um, great flavors, cool colors. They're kind of the thing that I love so much in the garden. You know, they are fun. And one thing that I have noticed is that the heirlooms have a lot of unique flavors. Oh, absolutely. The flavors, if you were to compare to a standard grocery store tomatoes, the, the flavors will knock your socks off. So um, they, they're very, um, like you said, they can be very different. The flavor profiles can be really complex in some of them. Um, you get different levels of acidity, um, different sweetnesses, different even textures on the, the flesh of the tomato. So really interesting experience for eating with some of these tomatoes. And like I said, they're, they're fantastic. And so what we're doing today is f- highlighting five of your favorite tomatoes. And you have four heirlooms and one hybrid. And so what's your first tomato? My first tomato is the green zebra tomato. So I love this tomato because it's kind of a medium-sized tomato. So you're not dealing with a great big, huge tomato that you're going to slice up and go, okay, now what do I do with the rest of this? I mean, you can eat this very easily, one person in a, in a meal. Um, it's green and yellow striped which I really like because those green tomatoes kind of take a backseat to some of these other flashier colors, but um, it has um, a good amount of acidity for that green kind of yellow tomato and really good for fresh eating. It's an indeterminate variety. So when we talk about tomatoes, we talk about them being determinate or indeterminate. Um, Indeterminate means that they'll keep growing, they'll keep vining and they'll keep setting fruit throughout the whole season where a determinate tomato will grow kind of more in a bushy form and will set one crop and kind of be done for the season. So those are things usually like our paste tomatoes. Um, So this one, you can can trellis or you can grow in a traditional cage. You can grow on the ground. However you choose to grow your tomato, you can do it with a green zebra. Um, So like I said, some of these varieties have a really cool history to them. Um, This one was developed by Tom Wagner. He was out of Everett, Washington. And um, he started thinking about green tomatoes in the 1950s for that same reason that 
those green tomatoes kind of take a back seat, but they have a lot to offer in the tomato world. Um, he didn't actually release it until 1983, and he released it. I love the name of his seed catalog that he had. It's called the Tater Mater Seed <laughs> Catalog. That just made me chuckle. <laughs> um, so it's one of my most favorite tomatoes. I grow it every year religiously, and it's my husband's favorite tomato, too. If I don't grow one of these, um, he may serve me divorce papers. So um, that's how good it is. We absolutely adore this tomato. And so how available is it? This one is fairly available. So you can usually find this one in the larger garden centers. Um, some of the things about heirlooms, or one of the things about heirlooms, is that um, with some of these different varieties, you might have to do a little seed catalog searching, and you may have to kind of grow your own, but you get some really interesting flavors and colors and textures that way, like how we've been talking about. Um, so yes, you can get this, and I've seen it in some of the larger nurseries, and I have definitely found it in seed catalogs every single year. And once you have one, you can save the seed from it pretty much indefinitely unless you end up with a problem, which isn't doesn't happen too often. So, so what's your next tomato? The pink German tomato. And sometimes we call it the pink German giant. It's called the giant because this one produces the largest tomatoes that I've ever grown. These we've grown at the USU Botanical Center, which is where I'm located at for USU Extension. And we consistently have got um, tomatoes that are larger than a pound. Um, they're light pink in color, so you get this beautiful pink hue. So if you were making a tomato salad, you want to add a bunch of different colors to that salad from different tomatoes. This is an excellent one to add. And it kind of has this very interesting, silky smooth texture. Um, and I'm a texture person. Texture is important to me when I eat. So I love how silky smooth this one is. It's not as acidic as what you'd find in a typical red tomato which is great. So if you have people in your family that are a little sensitive to the acidity, this is a really good option. And it's really good for fresh eating. Um, just great as a slicer. You can put it on sandwiches. You can put it in that salad. And again, this is an indeterminate variety. And where did this tomato originate? Um, this one originated out of Bavaria, kind of an interesting place to come from. And it's one of the tomatoes that kind of lit the heirloom tomato craze on fire. No, that is really neat. I see it occasionally in garden centers. Should people um, plan on buying seed or have you found it fairly available? This one is really available. So I've seen this one all over the place. And oh, I should mention, this is one that is a potato leaf variety. So sometimes with our tomatoes, we have a variety that has a really rounded leaf. It looks more like a potato leaf than it does a tomato leaf. Sometimes our tomato leaves are a little more lobed and they're kind of distinct that way. But this one definitely looks like a potato. So you'll notice that the leaf shape is different um, and kind of the growth habit is a little more bushy. But um, yeah, very available in the nurseries. And when you go to pick that plant up, you'll kind of second guess as to if it's a tomato. <laughs> so what's your next uh, species or excuse me, your next tomato? My next tomato, this is the hybrid, um, but this is the better boy tomato. And I love this tomato. This is the quintessential red tomato. It's got that acidic flavor. It's a medium to large tomato, and it's everything that you would expect from that red tomato. Um, it's great for fresh eating. You can use it in sauces. You can use it for canning. You can pretty much use it for anything, and it is prolific. So um, this actually set a Guinness Book of World Records record. Um, a single plant produced 342 pounds of tomatoes. 
So a massive amount of tomatoes can come from a single plant of these better boys. Um, again, this one's indeterminate. I had an uncle who owned a um, orange grove out in Palm Springs, and he decided to grow one of these to see how, how tall he could get it with that indeterminate type. And he planted it next to a telephone pole, and he actually got it all the way up the telephone pole. Um, so when you have a great climate, which ours isn't necessarily that way in Utah, but this this type of plant will continue to grow. And he yielded a ton of tomatoes off of that single plant. So um, it was produced by, by Burpee. Um, this plant is actually a cross between a large pink beefsteak type tomato called a Teddy Jones. And kind of an insignificant red parent. When you look up the history about this plant, they just said, it's a red parent. Um, but um, that cross became a, an incredible tomato and is definitely a standard in my garden. That's great. That's one I think that everyone's grandparents and parents had in their yard. I remember that that was always one of the go-to varieties for my parents. You know, we had to have mm -hmm. celebrity we had to have better boys and we had to have early girls. Those, those were the three. Yep. Those are, those are great varieties. And like I said, I think it's that standard because it yields so heavy and it's such a good producer that why would you not want to incorporate, you know, at least one of those into your garden? So yeah, great tomato. So what's your next tomato? My next tomato is the Goldman's Italian American tomato. Um, this is a really interesting tomato. It's an extra large tomato. It um, consistently yields fruit that's about a pound. The, the tomatoes are pear-shaped and they're ruffled. So they have the kind of this ruffled edge on the bottom of the pear shape. Um, it's a really silky texture, kind of like that pink German. Um, and it makes an incredible sauce. So this tomato I grow just for sauce in my garden. Um, again, it's indeterminate, so it will continue to yield throughout the season, but just a really good tomato. If you're into creating that tomato sauce, if you're going to do salsa, this is a good variety. Um, it was discovered by uh, Dr. Amy Goldman. She has an Italian heritage, and she was visiting Italy, and she was at an Italian roadside market in 1999 and found this variety at that market. And this family had been growing this variety for a generation. So she named it, she brought it back to the United States and she started to propagate it. And she named it after her great grandfather who um, immigrated from Italy and started an Italian market in Brooklyn. And he called it Goldman's Italian American. That was the name of his market. So a really interesting kind of backstory to that one. That's neat. I, I'm always looking for salsa tomatoes. And a problem I find with a lot of the tomatoes is that are so liquidy that, you know, you have a gallon of water when you're left over. So right. I'll have to try this one. Yeah. So there's not a lot of seed and there's not a lot of juice in this tomato. And it, it really has a very thick flesh on it. It's, it's a great tomato. I'll actually eat it straight out of the garden. I don't even use it for sauce. Sometimes I'll just eat it because that's just how I roll. But um, a great, <laughs> a great tomato. So you really should try it. Wonderful. So what's your fifth variety? All right. The fifth and the last one is a little bit tough to pronounce. This one's called the Costoludo Genovese tomato. And this is a great tomato. It is what they call an old Italian tomato. So this is what the old Italian grandmothers would grow. And they would grow them because they can use them for every purpose. You can use it for sauce. You can use it for paste. You can use it for fresh eating. Um, it's a beautiful red kind of medium-sized tomato. 
and it's very deeply lobed and it's kind of flat in shape. So it kind of looks a little more disc-like and those lobes are really distinct. It is an absolutely gorgeous tomato. Whenever um, we grow it here at the USU Botanical Center, I have more people come and ask, what is that tomato? Because it's just gorgeous. But you can use it for everything. Again, it's indeterminate, so we can get a great crop throughout the entire season. And an interesting fact about this one, um, this one was grown at Thomas Jefferson's um, Monticello Estate, and it's been around in the United States since the early 1800s. Um, he grew it, and he loved it. So a great historic tomato for America, even. Well, and it's nice to talk about these heirloom types and tomatoes from different areas of the world because we have our stereotypical tomato here that, like I said, the celebrity or the grocery store tomato that people kind of expect. And to find out there's just so many tomatoes out there useful for different things is really nice for, especially if you like to cook or you know, and you process tomatoes for different purposes. Right. So there's a, there's really a tomato for everyone out there <laughs> and for every use. So, um, yeah. No, that's great. Well, thank you so much for listing your five favorite tomatoes. And before I let you go, I wanted to also talk about Blossom Indrot. Starting in the next, you know, several weeks and people, you know, if they're using you know, high tunnels or low tunnels, or maybe a little sooner, we always get phone calls about blossom end rot. And can you describe what blossom end rot looks like? Yes, I can. So blossom end rot is a really common problem, like what you said. It shows up all the time, and it's on the bottom of the tomato. So the new growth on the tomato comes from the bottom, and it pushes up out of the off of the bottom up to the sides of the tomato. And on that bottom portion, you'll start to see this really nasty looking kind of tan to brown to black spot that um, is just a kind of necrotic, almost lesion-like spot where, you know, you lose that color of the tomato, the, the tissue behind it becomes kind of hardened and it, it just doesn't look appetizing. So what causes it? So there are a few things that can cause blossom endra on tomato. Temperature is one of those things and where we've had really cool temperatures um, that is one thing that can contribute to it. Really warm temperatures can contribute to it. Drought, um, when we have this dry kind of weather that we often get in the summertime, um, in um, consistent irrigation can also cause it. And high nitrogen levels, I believe, can also cause it. There, there are a number of factors that contribute to it. So, I mean, you start to read about it, if you look it all up online, and it kind of becomes overwhelming. Everything I do is going to contribute to blossom end rot. Um, so there's some things you can do to help yourself though. So um, what are your techniques for managing? So my number one technique is to make sure that my watering is even. I want to make sure that there's a good amount of water in the soil and that it's consistent. So I set my clock, my timer on my drip irrigation system so that it goes off, you know, the same time every other day in my vegetable area, um, I want to make sure that I'm not letting that soil dry down too much. So consistency is definitely key. I do have areas where I don't have a drip irrigation system, and I check the soil in those areas daily. And I may or may not water based on how much evaporation of that water I've, I've had out of that soil. So just watching and being kind of vigilant with that watering. I think that's key. And so I 
my tomatoes are under plastic right now, plastic mulch. But for mm-hmm. people not using plastic mulch, do you have any recommendations on keeping, you know, any sorts of other like organic mulches or glass yeah. clippings? Yeah. So I, I use a lot of straw. You can use that in the garden really easily. I try and source as weed free um, straw that I can find. Um, sometimes that can be a little tough. So every now and then you have to do a little bit of weeding, but it's not, it's not terrible. So any kind of mulch that you can put over the soil is going to help to keep that moisture in the soil and keep that consistent soil moisture level there. So like I said, you can use the straw, you can use bark mulch. I like the straw because I can till it in at the end of this of the season and not have to try and scrape it out of you know the garden and get it away so that I can till. But the bark mulch you can use, soil pep you could use. Um, anything, you know, like you mentioned grass clippings, anything that you can put over that soil to just kind of slow down that evaporation is a great idea. So there's some other solutions out there that people commonly talk about if you're on Pinterest or some of the Facebook gardening groups. I see recommended quite often to bury eggshells under the tomato or put eggshells around the tomato. Is that effective? No, not in our area. It's not. So that may be effective, you know, somewhere else. But for Utah soils, it really isn't effective. And that's because the problem isn't that we don't have calcium in our soil. So that's that's basically what people are doing. So blossom end rot is a calcium deficiency. That's why we see that necrosis on the bottom of that tomato, because we need calcium to help build cell walls. And if the plant can't move calcium to those cell walls, then those cell walls break down and we get that dead tissue. Um, so people say, oh, well, it's calcium. I'm going to put eggshells down at the bottom of the plant. And that's going to fix everything. Well, our soil already has plenty of calcium in it. Um, so it's not that the plant doesn't have calcium. It's that the plant can't move the calcium. And it comes. It usually comes back to watering um, and making sure that that plant has an even amount of moisture so it can move that big calcium molecule up through the plant um, because calcium isn't moved any other way but through the water vessels in the plant. So we have to be able to pull that calcium and move it, and that requires ample water. So, um, yeah, the eggshell the eggshell myth is, is not necessarily true for our area. Plus, that calcium isn't even broken down from that eggshell into the right form um, and even in small enough particles for our tomato to even take up. So the eggshells don't work. What about the commercial sprays that will be just be either labeled calcium spray or blossom end rot spray? Yeah, so a lot of people will will buy those. I think it's kind of a gimmick. Um, you know, if they if they do work, I haven't seen a lot of great success with them. If they do work for you, I mean, it's probably correcting the problem just at the moment, but it's not going to correct the overall problem in the plant. And, you know, again, it comes back to that watering. Um, so those I have not seen be terribly successful. I have seen a little bit of success with some of the foliar calcium sprays, but again, it's just correcting the problem in the moment. So you can do a foliar calcium spray. You can correct, you know, that problem at the moment in the leaves right next to the fruit, but then we've still got to correct the watering issue. We've still got to make sure that that plant, um, can correct the problem on its own, or we're going to see it happen again later. So the best solution is just to manage your irrigation and not over-fertilize? Definitely. Yeah, you don't want to over-fertilize because that pushes a lot of growth that the plant has to support. So 
that means that the plant is going to need a lot more water. So um, excessive nitrogen can, can kind of exacerbate the problem. Um, so yeah, just making sure that that water is even, even um, not over fertilizing, um, you know, you don't want to overwater either. So if you have really heavy clay soils, you just kind of have to find this balance. And I tell people it takes a while to get to know your soil. If you've moved into a new place or if you're just starting to garden um, and you're having some issues with things like blossom and rot, give yourself a break and take a deep breath and just kind of start to pay attention because it takes a while to build that relationship with your garden and with your soil and to know how quickly things drain um, and to find that right, kind of that pinpoint amount of water that you need. That is very important. I, I have found, you know, when I grew up in the Davis County area, we had sandy soil and we would water three times a week. Mm-hmm. When I moved to Hiram, my soil was kind of a mix of clay and grit, but still very well drained. And I would water, you know, a couple times a week. But here in Santa Quin, especially with my tomatoes under plastic, I water on drip about every two to three weeks is it yeah so see it can change so quickly from where you are you the system you're running so that's why i say that relationship with your garden just takes some time to build and get to know it really does and that's it brings up a point that when people ask well how often should i water it's just so hard to say for sure It is. And I always say, well, it depends. (laughs) Let's talk about a few factors. And we talk about soil texture and we talk about drainage and we talk about mulch and we talk about size of plants and all these factors go into it. So watering can be really, really technical. Sheridan, thank you. And your knowledge is much appreciated and we need to get you on the podcast and on the Greenhouse Show much more often. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Tom. This has been so much fun. I so appreciate you asking me to come. And to finish up the program, intern Annie Smith. Annie, what's this week's vegetable? It was radishes, which are a surprising thing to use in different dishes other than just eating fresh for me. So what was the recipe you cooked this week? Uh, This week I did roasted garlic radishes. I roasted them in the oven and then I made a homemade ranch dipping sauce to use with them. I had some and it was very delicious. So I can attest to that. But what did you do to prepare the radishes? It was really easy. It only took probably 20 minutes, including prep time. I just washed them, chopped them in halves or quarters, depending on how big they were. And then I melted some butter and just tossed the radishes in the butter and added all the different spices until they were evenly coated. And then just threw them in the oven at 425 and roasted them. I think I did it at about 10 minute intervals and then I just tossed them in between until they were golden brown. Yeah. And they come out looking almost like baby potatoes or just cut up potatoes. Yeah, they do. But when you eat them, what's the texture to them? The texture is softer, I think, than normal potatoes would be. And I think because they were in the oven, it made them a little softer, too. Definitely none of the crunch of fresh garlic. None of the crunch of fresh fresh radishes. radishes. The texture of them wasn't bad at all. In fact, it was something very edible, something that I would definitely eat again. I think they're they're similar to potatoes, but just a healthier alternative. And you can use them almost like you would potatoes. And so instead of 
um, roasting them in the oven, I took a stab at this with the radishes and I took about a pound, cut them up into about half inch cubes. And then I pan fried them with two tablespoons of olive oil with just a little bit of garlic and a little bit of onion. And then I cooked them on low, medium heat for about 10 to 15 minutes. I liked them at 10 minutes a little better because they still had a little bit of the, not Christmas, but they were a little more firm. My wife liked them better at 15 minutes. And the texture on the inside was very similar to the oven, oven roasted, but the outsides had a little bit of a sear on them that was a little bit crispy. So what about the dressing? The dressing was really easy. It was just a simple ranch. It had mayo and sour cream and milk as the base ingredients. And you can change the amount of milk depending on how thick you want it. But the spices it used were almost identical to what I used in the radish dish. So I thought it would be a good and easy companion because I already had all those things out. It's just I used some finely chopped green onion, fresh parsley, onion powder, garlic powder, dried dill weed, salt, pepper, a little bit of lemon juice. I liked making the homemade ranch because I always have a little bit of beef with different ranch dressings because they all taste different. And this way I could customize it to exactly what I wanted. And it was simple. So It sounded like an easy recipe, but you also mentioned that you could easily make this entire recipe vegan friendly. Yeah, mostly I'm there are substitutes you can do for the ranch. I know one of them is using coconut milk or... I used coconut almond milk, actually, is to thin it out a little bit. None of the coconut flavor came through Yeah, none at all. Um, There are different recipes you can look up to substitute the mayo and sour cream. And then the radishes can be easily vegan if you use, um, instead of butter, you can use coconut oil or vegetable oil. Or even vegan butter, I'd imagine. I used a vegan butter because that's what I had on hand in my kitchen. And it tasted great, I thought. It did. And fortunately, there's a lot of alternatives and that you can substitute in depending on your health needs and dietary needs. But this is an easy, it sounds like an easy enough recipe that if you wanted to try something with it, it's very easy to do, you know, try something different or a different spice or herb. The original recipe that I was working off of, I disagreed with a little bit. And so I changed some of the spices I used for that exact same reason. That's great. It tasted good, easy to prepare. And even with the ranch dressing, I imagine much healthier than potatoes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything else? We'll be back next week with another recipe. (laughs) Well, thank you for your time. And we appreciate you spending time in the kitchen, preparing everything and have a great week. Hey, you too. Thanks. Special thanks again to Sheridan Hansen and intern Annie Smith. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension.